Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This weekend marked the 80th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the deal between Germany and Russia carved up Central Europe and kicked off World War II. The deal offers uh, lots of interesting lessons for today. Russia's interpretation of the event is especially noteworthy. With me is historian Timothy Snyder. His book, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, was published in 2010 and won lots of awards and acclaim. Good to talk with you again, Timothy Snyder. Very glad to talk to you. I wonder if you could take us back and uh, remind us what kind of people Hitler and Stalin were kind of on the eve of this pact. I think in particular Stalin, uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't people think that people get the full effect of what he was up to uh, at the time. Uh, could you give us a little lowdown there? Well, we have to start by remembering that it was a, a very different world than the world that we have now. It was a world which was still a world of imperialism, a world where people believed that borders could still be changed by violence, that whole peoples could be mastered, colonized, even exterminated. It was a world where uh, modernization was believed to be possible by way of vast programs of acceleration at huge cost to human life. So by 1939, the Soviet Union had been under the control of Joseph Stalin for about a decade. It had been a decade of rapid transformation, which began with the collectivization of agriculture. That means the end of private property on the countryside, the loss of farms, and the creation of collective units under the control of the state. That was accompanied by tremendous forced migrations of people to cities, but also to the gulag, as well as the loss of millions of lives by way of starvation. The end of the 1930s were marked by the Great Terror, in which about a million Soviet citizens were executed, and a larger number were sent to the gulag. So the Soviet Union, when the Second World War began, was the most violent country in the history of of, of modern humanity, anyway. Um, but I mean, and, people didn't know a lot about what happened in Ukraine with um, with the starvation. Uh, there were there were probably some unknowns. People probably didn't know the extent of some of the counter revolutionary killings in in, uh, in in the Soviet Union. Well, one has to distinguish between knowing and caring. I think. I mean, we have this. We have an idea of human rights where we now at least acknowledge that we should pay attention if there's an event that we would call genocide or a mass human rights violation. That was much less true in the 1920s and 1930s. If you go back and look at the reporting. Um, even the New York Times, which was horribly weak on the reporting of the Soviet Union in the early 30s, you can still piece together that something pretty catastrophic had taken place. But remember, this was the United States during the Great Depression, and the United States was above all concerned to have trade relations with other countries. So in November of 1933, we initiate diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union, a country of a very different ideological background, largely because we think it's important to trade with them. The president of the United States was hearing about these things. It just – it wasn't the sort of thing which drew the kind of attention in the US that we might wish that it would have done. So you're, you're right that we knew less then than we knew now. But I think it's also important not to romanticize. People also just cared less than we might wish that they did. Now, uh, Stalin was also killing Polish people within uh, Russia, the Soviet Union at the time. He saw Poland as a threat. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I say it's a different world, another way that it was a different world was that there was no European Union. There's, there's, there's no NATO. This is, this is a world of much closer diplomatic anarchy where country, great empires were, were shrinking. New countries had come into existence after 1918, such as Poland. If you're German, you're the Soviet Union. You think that Poland is, is either a threat to you or Poland is a barrier to your own expansionist ambitions. From the point of view of Stalin, from the point of view of the version of Marxist ideology, which was Stalin's, Poland could only be a kind of avant-garde of international capitalism. And because the Soviet Union had a long border with Poland, uh, Stalin understood Poland as a security threat. That said, what he did was, as, as many dictators will do or aspiring dictators will do, he vastly overplayed, overestimated but also overplayed that threat to the point where in the Great Terror of 1937 and 1938, which I mentioned before, there was a, a, a mass murder of Poles. Roughly 100,000 ethnic Poles inside the Soviet Union were murdered, which by the standards of the time is, is a huge number. And that, to go back to the earlier point, is something that no one really understood at the time. I mean, people in Warsaw and Polish diplomats knew that these people were disappearing, but they assumed they'd been sent to the gulag. In fact, they'd been shot in the back of the head. All right. So, I mean, let's go over Hitler now. And, and by comparison, I mean, he's he is kind of the more peaceable fellow at this point. Well, I mean, you probably, that's not a sentence I would, that's not a word I would probably want, but but it's, it's, tr- it's true that we see the violence of the Second World War uh, almost entirely in terms of Nazi violence. And that's understandable for one one good reason and one not so good reason. One good reason is that almost all of the Nazi violence takes place during the war itself. So whereas Soviet violence was worse before the war, Nazi violence was much, much worse during the war. So the major crimes of of National Socialism are things that took place after hostilities had begun. The not-so-good reason is that when the United States entered the war, we entered the war as an ally of the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany. So in 1941, when we enter the war as an ally of Stalin, there's not any very good reason for us to be reviewing Stalinist crimes, but there is a very good reason for us to be considering German crimes. So but your point, your basic point is right. In the 1930s, up to 1939, National Socialism was very violent, but it did not really stand out against the standards of the day. You couldn't – the concentration camp system in Germany in the 1930s held first hundreds and then thousands and then before the Second World War, roughly 20,000 people. So it was a substantial system. But if you compare it to other incarceration systems in the world today or if you compare it to the size of the gulag at the time, it doesn't really stand out. So the Nazi system had a a horrifying ideology and it had terrifically violent potential, but most of that potential was going to be realized in pursuit of that ideology only after the war began. I'm talking with Timothy Snyder. His book, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, was published in 2010. And we're talking about that history on the 80th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Now, uh, the, so the motivations for both parties to sign this pact is – how would you describe it at this point? Is It's because there is um, – seems to be a combination of motivations. So I think one thing which we have to stress at the outset is just how strange ideologically the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was. It's so strange that we we tend to forget it's how the Second World War actually 
began. In fact, I'm really I'm really pleased we're having this conversation because almost no one even remembers that the Second World War began not just with a German attack on Poland, but with a German Soviet attack on Poland. And the Second World War began de facto as a Soviet German alliance against, in effect, everybody else. We forget that because in 1941, by the time we enter the war, things are different. And we enter the war as an ally of the Soviet Union, which had just been an ally of Nazi Germany, which is very awkward for us. And so we prefer just not to think about it at all. So I'm glad we're having this conversation for that basic reason. But the, the motives are, are interesting. So Hitler thinks time is running short. Hitler's ideology is an ideology of race. He believes that the German race is superior but that there is an international Jewish conspiracy which takes on a capitalist form and a communist form and other forms and that the German race only has a certain amount of time to break out of the constraints of this conspiracy that he believes in and seize land in order to become a great power, a power um, where the, the natural superiority of the German race can show itself. And that land that he wants though – is inside the Soviet Union. So his main enemy in the ideology, and he's very clear about this, is actually the Soviet Union. Um, and it's not that Stalin doesn't know this. Stalin has actually read Hitler's writings. Stalin is aware of that Hitler really wants the grain of Ukraine and he wants, he wants the oil, the Caucasus. But what Stalin thinks is that uh, – Capitalism is the ultimate question, that Germany is a capitalist country and if you can just make the contradictions of capitalism work against themselves, the Soviet Union can see its way through. So what Stalin wants is for the Germans to fight the French and the British and then these three, as he sees it, capitalist empires will wear themselves out and then the Soviet Union can come in at the end. That's his logic for making an agreement with a country that he knows is aggressive to him and to his system. From the German point of view, it's a bit different. Hitler, as I say, is in a big hurry. He wants a war. Up until early 1939, he thinks he's going to invade the Soviet Union with Polish help. This is where Poland becomes a big part of the story. Poland refuses to fight the Second World War as a German ally, which means that Hitler has to change gears and begin the Second World War in a way that he didn't expect, which is by destroying Poland. Once he decides he's going to destroy Poland, which is about spring of 1939, he realizes that it would make sense to have a Soviet ally in doing that. So then that's August of 1939. So the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is stitched up very quickly as a kind of improvisation which allows Hitler to begin his war as he sees it. And as Stalin sees it, it allows Stalin to push the war over to the West. Because if the Soviets and the Germans start the war as allies, that means that the Germans are going to be fighting the French and the British, which for a while is how it actually transpires. Now, one of the interesting things as the war gets going, the Germans go in first and the Soviets kind of go in a little less quickly into Poland. But I was surprised to read about how they seemed like a little bit more savvy in the ways of occupying people. I mean, the, certainly the Germans had a lot of weird things going on and were killing people. But the the Soviets go in there and declass the the Polish intellectuals and start a pretty, you know, I would call it more savvy thing. It seemed like going on. Yeah, I, I think you got your finger on something very important, and it's something which goes against our own, as it were, national stereotypes. Because we, we would like, we tend to think the Germans are very orderly, and then perhaps the Russians are less orderly. But if you consider 1939. And the way these two systems functioned in 1939, what you have is a German system which is relatively inexperienced in mass violence. Sure, you have a very big army. 
and you have this paramilitary organization called the SS. And the paramilitary organization called the SS has been running concentration camps, although not on a huge scale. They have murderous objectives. So, for example, they have the idea that when they enter Poland in September 1939, they're going to kill about 60,000 members of the Polish intelligentsia. But this is a good example of your point. They don't actually find those 60,000 people. They kill that many people, but it's not the ones that they were actually looking for. And the Soviets, on the other hand, are very experienced at repression. Uh, their, their main organ of repression, which at the time is called the NKVD, has been carrying out mass operations of various kinds from the revolution forward. So for two decades, they are very good not just at classifying people and finding them. They're also politically, as you say, much more savvy. So if there is some kind of underground resistance to Soviet occupation in the eastern part of Poland, the Soviets don't immediately hammer away and try to destroy it. Instead, they arrest one person. They try to recruit that one person. They try to turn more people. They try to pervert the organization. They try to make it discredit itself until at the end, it's a kind of just phantom. And then at the very end, when they've done as much damage to the idea and the cause of resistance as they can, at the end, then they wind it up and arrest everybody they need to arrest. Whereas the Germans are much less well-organized and much more in inclined towards random acts of violence. They're much worse at actually penetrating and turning people. So, And this arises from, I think, a very interesting difference in ideology because since the Germans were racists, the Germans believed that they were racially superior to the Poles and to everyone else, they were arrogant. They looked down on people. They thought, well, these people can't possibly be very well-organized, right? They can't be better organized than we are. And so they sometimes overlooked organizations which were taking place right in front of their face, whereas the Soviets, on the other hand, interestingly, were modest because the Soviet ideology said we're up against an international capitalist conspiracy, which is incredibly well organized and has nodes all around the world and all the international intelligence organizations are cooperating against us, which wasn't really true. But that sense of being an embattled fortress surrounded by everyone meant that they were kind of humble in the way that they approached every enemy and that humility served them very well. They, they were – as you say, they were able to un, unwrap, undo, um, destroy Polish resistance on their side of Poland much faster than the Germans were. I'm talking with historian Timothy Snyder about the start of World War II, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And I wanted to um, kind of ease into some of the modern interpretations of what's going on here. And I mean, the way we're describing the way the Soviets went about their business, they weren't doing this – kind of in self-defense, they were uh, they were playing to win. They were playing to occupy and dominate the areas that they came into. Yeah. I mean, one has to remember the, the grandeur of the Soviet project. The Soviet project was to transform the world. If you are looking at, at the world from Stalin's point of view, there's there's an ideology, Marxism, which explains why capitalism is full of contradictions. Capitalism will eventually collapse. It's not doing so as quickly as we expected. But in the meantime, the Soviet Union, the ideology goes, is, is a kind of island. It's the homeland of socialism. It's the only place in the world which has achieved the good from – again, from the point of view of, of the ideology. And once you're there – Pretty much anything you do can be justified and it can be justified as defensive because if the whole if the whole world is capitalist and the whole world is against you, then basically anything you do, including invading other countries, you will characterize as defensive even if it doesn't look that way from the point of view of those you are invading. 
So in September of, of 1939, and this is a point which is worth stressing, the Germans and the Soviets were military allies in an offensive military pact where the Germans invaded from the West and then 16 days later, the Soviets invaded from the East. And from the Soviet point of view, they were carrying out a war. Um, they brought massive force to bear against the Polish army. Um, they arrested very large numbers of prisoners of war. And then beyond that, they, also, they carried out a large number of quite, I mean, from the point of any point of view of international law, even at the time, illegal actions such as the mass murder of Polish officers or the deportation of hundreds of thousands of Polish citizens to Kazakhstan or to Siberia. So they were playing to win in their own sense. I mean, what they thought was going to happen was we will take half of Poland, we'll take a bit of Romania, we'll take the Baltic states, we will bring them into our system. And by the way, that's another difference with Germany. Germany governs, governs Poland as a colony. The Soviets, whatever they're doing, it's the same thing that they do to their own citizens. We'll bring them into our system and then after the Western uh, powers have exhausted themselves, we'll see what comes next. But probably we'll be able to advance further. And by the way, after the Second World War, they, they do actually advance further. I'm talking with Timothy Snyder. His book, Bloodlands Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, is a history of the start of World War II, what happened in World War II uh, between Germany and Russia. And uh, we're going to take a break and be back after the break with more. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This weekend marked the 80th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and we are talking about the start of World War II with historian Timothy Snyder. His book, um, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, was published in 2010 and was um, was all about the war between Hitler and Stalin. Now, I where we left off, I was trying to get to the um, point of how this is all interpreted today because Russia... Um, comes out and says some things today that really are more along the self-defense lines. Like we we had to do this because, you know, it was Germany. And and it also seems to put Russia's activities today in a, uh, a certain light that makes them kind of like the self-defense defense. Yeah, this is this is all very important. I mean, not just in Russia, but but around the world, especially in the West. We continue to, 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 to look back to the Second World War for an idea of, of who we are and it's important that we don't go too wrong with that factually because then we end up in places where we might not want to be. Uh, the, the, the Soviet Union – in 1939, uh, was was a partner in an aggressive military alliance with Nazi Germany. That's a sentence which is basically unsayable in in Russian, but it's it's true, and it's a, it's an important part of the history of Stalinism, which is the larger question at stake here. If if you are Putin and what you're trying to do is defend some kind of idea that Stalin was a good manager, then what you have to be able to say is that this was a kind of tactical masterstroke and that Stalin was showing that he was practical rather than ideolog ideological. 
In fact, this is not really a glorious moment for Stalin as a tactician because after he makes the agreement with Hitler, he then refuses to believe more than 100 intelligence warnings, some of them quite detailed, which showed that the Germans were about to evade the Soviet Union in the first half of 1941. I mean, it's something that was rather hard to miss. The Germans assembled huge amounts of men and horses and materiel and armor on, on their common border before they attacked. But Stalin insisted on missing it. So it's precisely the moment where Stalin showed that he wasn't such a good tactician, in fact, because the Soviet Union was almost destroyed because he refused to face reality. But my point is that if you're Putin, you're trying to play down the ideology. You're trying to say, like me, you know, like me, Putin, Stalin was a good manager and he was resisting all that ideological nonsense. He was just doing the things that we had, he had to do to preserve the state. That's the story that you're trying to tell. And in that story, you get to look away from a couple of things. You get to look away from the fact that it didn't actually work out very well for the Soviet Union at all, which is what I just said. And the second thing you get to look away from is the fact that the Soviet Union did in fact betray whatever ideals it might have had. I mean, you can you can see the Soviet Union however you want. I've already said something about how I see it, but it did stand for anti-fascism and then it made an alliance with the greatest fascist power. Um, if you think about this all in terms of just like some kind of geopolitical game, you can look away from the moment of 1939, which was a horrible betrayal of basically the essence of what the Soviet Union was was supposed to stand for. And then there's the question that you raise, which is which is the question of the defensive. The Soviet Union went on the offensive in 1939. It fought an offensive war. And when it fought an offensive war, its rationale was to say, look, Europe is just a mess. Um, these other countries aren't real. Poland doesn't really exist. We're just going to go in and protect people, which interestingly is exactly what it said when it invaded Ukraine in early 2014. I mean, almost word for word, the rationale was the Ukrainian state has ceased to exist. It's all just a big mess. We have to go in and protect ethnic minorities. So you're right that the, the interpretation of Soviet of, of a Soviet aggressive war in 1939 and a Russian aggressive war in 2014 are very tightly molded together. Are there larger lessons that um, that everybody can draw from this? Because um, uh, about that we can apply to today. I think there is a certain um, uh, there's a huge volume of othering that went on with uh, people in that day, and um, you could kind of mold that to today and say, well, that, 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 that kind of same kind of thing can happen. Well, goodness, that's a very big and open-ended question. I'm going to try to give you a, a few examples, um, maybe some of them surprising. I think a big part of the problem in our political discussion in the U.S. today is that r rather than asking what was wrong with Hitler and Stalin, we just pick the side that we like the least whether, depending upon whether we think we're on the right or whether we think we're on the left. So people on the left talk more about Hitler and people on the right talk more about Stalin. But the real question isn't Hitler and Stalin. The real question is what they did that was wrong. And then from that, the answer to that question, we can try to define what we're doing that could be right. Because there's an, there's an awful lot of us and them in our own politics lately inside the U.S. and in the relationship between Americans and others. I think it's important for Hitler and Stalin not to become cartoon characters where if you're on the right, you hate Stalin. If you're on the left, you hate Hitler. But rather to be able to say, well, we're actually against aggressive wars. We're against colonial wars or we're against pro uh, 
projects of modernization which cost millions of lives. We're against seeing people as means to an end. We're against the things that these two regimes had in common, some of which I've, I've, I've just named. And we are for other things. I think that would be a, a, a very good thing because we're, we're losing the sense that what these two people did was wrong and instead they're becoming kind of flags that people wave in the faces, in the faces of others. A second thing which is, is worth noting here is the importance of some larger international system. So the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is maybe uh, the, the, the wildest extreme of where great power politics can go, where you have these two massively powerful states who sign a treaty in secret, of course, about destroying other states, about destroying Poland, about destroying the Baltic states, um, indirectly about destroying Romania. That's That's great power politics when you have – already modern ideology and when you have modern weaponry. We have gotten in some parts of the world sometimes past great power politics. We have things like the European Union. We have we have international law. We have a general sense that changing borders is not such a good idea, especially by force. It's better for the states to exist to cooperate economically, culturally, politically. Uh, that's a lesson from this. Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is the extreme of great power politics. If you pull away the European Union, if you pull away all the forms of cooperation that we have, this is the alternative, that you end up with states not taking other states seriously and then the peoples who are there losing their rights, which is a third thing I wanted to mention, the and this is relevant for the U.S. today, you can talk about human rights all you want, but but human rights only matter when somebody is recognizing them. And what what this one thing the Soviets and the Nazis did when they invaded Poland together in 1939 is they both said the Polish state doesn't exist. Why is that important? It's important because it meant that they took the 40 million Polish citizens and they said, you're citizens of nowhere. You have no state. You are stateless. And if you can do that, that means you can deprive people of rights because if there's no instance that you can appeal to to defend your rights, national or international, then you don't have rights. You just become a kind of undifferentiated human mass and, and, and the invaders can do with you whatever you want. The Germans and the Soviets did something similarly. They did other things differently. But they had in common this idea that there's no state. Therefore, these people have no protection. That's a fundamental lesson of 1939, which we should probably be remembering. It's very important not to push people into that situation where they have no state protection. It's very important, if you can, to err on the side of looking for ways in which they can be recognized by the state. Or if you are a big, powerful state, like, for example, the United States of America, you should be leaning towards extending state protection towards to, towards people rather than taking it away from them. Because when you take when you take the state away from people, you're putting them in the extreme vulnerable position of modern politics. I'm talking with historian Timothy Snyder about some of the ideas in his book, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. Uh, I wanted to zip right up to something you wrote about and uh, 400 other scholars also uh, wrote a letter to the U.S. Holocaust Museum for um, a discussion about what is and isn't a concentration camp. Uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, went and saw some of the places where the U.S. is holding people along the border, and she said, well, these look like concentration camps to me, and there was a lot of pushback, and uh, the Holocaust Museum said, well, there is only one Holocaust, and um, this cannot be a concentration camp. Um, and you wrote a rather lengthy article in Slate about this, uh, uh, objecting to where the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum was coming from. It's about, from my point of view, it's about history. 
do we really believe in history or do we not really believe in history? For me, the Holocaust is an event in history. From my point of view, as a, as a scholar and as a human being, it's the most important event in history, at least in modern history. But it is in history. That is to say, because it happened, that means it could have happened. And because it was carried out by people, it was carried out by people who are not so different than us. The, the bystanders, the perpetrators, the victims are people not so different from us, not so far from us in time and space. And if you think of it as history, that means it's your job to look at it and see how was that possible? What were the what were all the conditions that had to be there? And then might some of those conditions also obtain in other times and places like our own? If you're a historian, if you think of this the Holocaust as history, you have to ask uh what can we learn from it that would stop us from doing things? Because the problem isn't that you're going to become a victim. I mean, it's very attractive to be in the victim position. Everybody wants to be a victim these days. But the the what the important thing is to take responsibility for history and to say, okay, if something like this was possible, what can we do as individuals, as a society, as a government to make it less likely now? Um, the the other position is to say it's not really history. It's 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 memory. It's 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 sacrosanct. Therefore, it's outside of history. We don't want it to be compared to anything else. The problem with that is that if you put it outside of history, then you lose your ability to recognize things that might be a little bit similar to it. Nothing will ever be exactly again like the Holocaust. It, the Holocaust was unprecedented in its time and it's still unprecedented in its horror in my view. But if you put it outside of history, you're actually making something like it more likely because if you put it outside of history, you are stripping yourself of the mental resources that you might have to be on guard for patterns that you should be uh, aware of. I mean, so to put it simply, I don't think the fact that that a Holocaust took place should ever be used as an argument for repressive policies in your own country. I think it should always be the other way around. The, ho- the whole history of the Holocaust, beginning in 1933, if you want, the history of, of, of the decline of Germany, that whole history has to be a set of instructions for how we should be on guard as to what we ourselves are doing. I think that should be the purpose. The moment you say um, that, well, we haven't done anything that bad yet, what you're basically doing is giving yourself permission to do the next bad thing. What you should be doing is saying the Holocaust was a result of a million decisions, of millions of little actions, as well as horrifying ideologies and and horrifying leaders in a war and so on. And we have to be on guard to make sure that we're not also taking one of those million small steps which lead in a direction like that. I wanted to ask a couple questions about some of the issues you raised in your books uh, on tyranny and the road to unfreedom. And one of the underlying lessons uh, for me was how quickly institutions can dissolve under pressure of tyranny and how fast things can change. Um, How do you think uh, the U.S., Europe, um, Russia, how do you think other places are doing on standing up to tyranny right now? First thing I want to do, Jerome, is, is, is relate that question to your last one because they're actually very closely related. One of the problems with saying it can't happen here is that you then lose the time that you need to prevent it from happening here. 
That's your people's first reaction is to say, oh, we're not like that. We're better because we're American or we're X, Y, and Z. Or, or it can't happen here because our institutions are better than that other place. But the time you use patting yourself on the back is the time that you lose that you actually need to protect those institutions or to take the affirmative action that you need to take to prevent things from happening. So these questions are very closely related. As I see it, like the, the impulse to say – well, Germany is so far away and what happened there is just a kind of – it's just a kind of negative symbol. It doesn't have anything to do with anything that Americans might do. That impulse is the same impulse which says, well, we don't really have to worry about democracy in the United States or in the world because how could it be under threat? America means democracy and democracy means America. I, I don't – I mean – well, you don't have to ask me. I mean people who, who measure these things can tell you that the picture is very grim. For more than a dozen years, uh, democracy has been in decline all, all around the world. Places that we thought were moving towards democracy have found alternatives. We told ourselves that there were alternatives, but there clearly are. There are, there are new forms of authoritarianism in Russia and in China, which have influence well beyond their own borders. In the United States, uh, there's a lot more support for authoritarianism, it turns out, than one perhaps might have thought a couple of years ago. Uh, in, in the United Kingdom, which is the homeland of parliamentarism, we have a prime minister who's just taught, sought to, to suspend the parliament so he could force something through in a rather authoritarian way. I think in, in the US, our main, pro, our, our main problem, I think, is that we have – or one of our main problems is that we have forgotten that democracy is an action directed towards the future as opposed to a form of congratulation about our past. I mean one of the reasons why conversations like this are, are valuable is that they remind us that things in the past weren't necessarily as good as we think, um, that if we want democracy, we actually have to keep pushing to make things better. Going back to a U.S. as it was in the 1930s or the 1940s, the 1950s is, is not really an answer. That would make us less democratic, not more. Democracy is something that you have to push forwards towards. It has to be a desirable future, rather than rather than a kind of a, a kind of contemplation of an idealized present. Are there institutions in the U.S. that you're worried about, especially right now? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think the I think. The most important institution is one that we've forgotten about almost because it's it's slowly ceasing to exist, and that is the that is the institution of investigative journalism and local journalism. The 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 founders were very concerned with free speech, and they were rightly concerned with free speech. But the reason why you want free speech is that you need to find out the difficult facts which challenge which challenge power which challenge the way we think the way we think things are that can only happen when you pay people to be reporters locally nationally internationally and that's a profession which is shrinking free speech isn't important because people repeat the things that powerful people say free speech isn't important because people repeat what everybody else wants to hear i mean that should be protected of course but that's not why free speech is important free speech is important because it reveals the uncomfortable things Things which help us improve our policies and ourselves. And we can't find out those uncomfortable things if the profession of journalism is declining. Now, I mean, there are lots of reporters who have been doing great work in the last couple of years, but behind them, unfortunately, there's a great darkness as local and international reporting continues to spiral downward in this country. So that's that's one institution that I'm really worried about. It's very hard for Americans to be Americans to think they have something in common unless they have a common fabric of factuality, which is based on the hard work of, of reporters. So if you ask me about one institution, that's that's the one that I would I would emphasize first. 
Timothy Snyder is a historian. We were chatting a bit about his uh, books on tyranny and the road to unfreedom. And before that, we spent a good chunk of time talking about some of the material in Bloodlands, Europe between Hitler and Stalin. Uh, there is That's about the uh, start of World War II. And we did that for the 80th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Timothy Snyder, good talking with you again. Pleasure's been mine. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we are going to uh, do something we've been doing on occasion here. We've been marking the 25th anniversary of Worldview by chatting with some of the interesting people who worked on the show over the years. And uh, next, we will chat with producer number one, Gretchen Helfrich. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. To mark 25 years of Worldview, I've been chatting with some of the interesting people who've worked on the show over the years, and Gretchen Helfrich is certainly one of them. She was producer number one for Worldview way back in 1994. She did the show and stayed with the show till 1998 before she went on to host Odyssey in this very studio until 2005, and Gretchen is now a civil rights attorney. Hey, Gretchen. Hi, Jerome. What do you remember about getting the job? Do you remember uh, how you applied for the job of Worldview? Actually, I do remember. Um, So I was a volunteer at the radio station, and I had become friendly with Adam Davidson, who you may remember, who is now a New Yorker writer. And when I heard that you were taking over the show, I said to Adam, I think I'm going to ask Jerome if I could be an intern on the show, because I had a degree I'd studied international relations in college and I thought this might, this might be a good fit. Service. Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And Adam said, don't. It's a terrible idea. Jerome will not <laughs> hire you. He doesn't like interns or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay. And I thought, I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. And so... And you stuck a resume in the mailbox. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the, of the of Yeah. The it was a rather casual was a, was recruiting right. system <laughs> back in those days. It was very casual. And, and on our side, Tori and I were sitting there, um, Tori Malatia, and we were, um, we're like, hey, who can we get to produce this program? Right. Actually, there's, here's, here's, a, here's a There's a resume in the mailbox, magically. This and is what I think, Georgetown Jerome. Foreign Service grad. I think you were thinking... I don't want anyone's help at all, but I have to have it. Because <laughs> <That is laughs> there was intense skepticism way. from you. Um, yeah, I wanted to keep producing the show. I was a producer. The I was producer, really, right? I was, I was like locked into that. I did not really want to host the show, and you didn't want to turn I, over the and control. I didn't want to turn over the control, and it took about ten years. That's before right. Before I uh, dropped the control. Right. I mean, you chewed me right up, chewed up a few other producers before was, you got used to having a producer. It was gruesome. It was gruesome. Yeah. I do remember, though, that you told me that I had the job or that I would have the, the privilege of working for extremely <laughs> little money on a very, very uh, like contractual, not very stable basis. Um, the day of the OJ chase. Because I was super excited to get the job, and I remember going out with friends that night to celebrate. Are you OJ in this analogy? I am not. Who is the... uh... It was during the NBA Finals, and all of the bars were showing either the OJ Chase or the NBA Finals with a little picture-in-picture of the OJ Chase. (laughs) So I remember that day very well. What do you remember about... The thing I remember about that was it was the time before the internet. 
And, you know, we were, you know, we wanted to know what was going on in the world. I always think of that as like the modus operandi of the show in the early days. Like we we read the paper. We we yeah, there weren't a lot of papers to read, though. Well, right. But we read the paper. We read magazines. But there wasn't just like going online and checking in to see like, did anything develop in that story? It's a little was a little easier because like the news wasn't going to change too much. Right. You had a little a little slower news cycle. And if something happened in the afternoon of one day, it was probably going to be okay to talk about it the next day. You didn't need to worry too much about like everything being overtaken by events. That didn't happen all that rarely or all that commonly. In spite of my uh, – I remember you um, once compared me to the Unabomber, which um, – Did I? Yes, which always stuck with me because I was like, wow. Didn't stick with me. I really – it was also the time of the Unabomber and you said, Drum, you're just like the Unabomber. You would love to be up there in a cabin making your own screws. Oh, that's um, true. And, you know, writing crazy treaties and things. I mean, I'm not a violent person, but I I have a – there was – I was like, oh, my gosh, I am a little like the Unabomber. (laughs) I'm glad. I could help you on your journey to self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, you were helpful. I also remember, um, and I was so lousy at doing the show, and you would come back and you'd say, Jerome, you're huge. And I, <laughs> even though I was, had been screwing up the show, you were like, Jerome, you're huge. This is great. <laughs> and and I, you'd buck up my confidence when I was uh, doing lousy. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I remember saying that to you, but I didn't know that that made any difference. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm talking to Gretchen Helfrich here, who produced Worldview from 1994 to 1998 before going on to host Odyssey for many years in this studio that we're sitting in. You got any other memories from all this this time long ago? Because it was a long time ago. Um, I do remember – I don't know if I should, <laughs> should say this. Uh, that, that's but like... I do remember that we, we kind of eventually developed a rhythm that worked sometimes, didn't always work, where – so, like, pronouncing weird names was not your best thing Still back then? Not. Okay. <laughs> so we sort of developed a pattern where, like, if the name was coming up, you would time whatever you were saying so there was enough of a beat that I could jump in there and give you the pronunciation and, you could, <laughs> and then smoothly you could get it onto the air. No one would be the wiser. Especially, I will say, Polish names. Polish names. Yeah. Tough. You just couldn't do those. I was not on those. So uh, yeah. I do remember that. But I also remember sitting here in the studio, I was just thinking, like, so we had so many interesting people come through, especially once we got to these slightly nicer digs on Navy Pier. We couldn't necessarily always get everybody up to the 39th floor. For people who don't know, WBEZ used to be the Bankers Building, which I don't even Clark think it's... Clark and Adams. Yeah. So. I don't even think it's called the Bankers Building anymore. I'm not sure. But it was then. And we were in essentially an attic and an attic of an attic. <laughs> In that facility. Yes, and if you were disabled, you were out of luck. Oh, I, I, yeah. I did carry people up the flight of stairs uh, there before. Wow. Yeah. It was it was very uh, makeshift as a compliment to that particular space. But so we we didn't necessarily I liked have gritty. I like it was plucky, and it was, <laughs> I have a lot of fond memories of that. I do too. I wasn't there as long as you. I think I was only there about a year, and then we came over here. But just looking at the studio, just all of the people who've come through, who you've talked to, and who've sat in these chairs around this round table, um, you know, the authors and the politicians, and and just you know, people out in the world trying to do something. Not always people that you thought were trying to do something good. Sometimes they maybe weren't, but you know, they were they were in it. They were like 
in the mix. And it was, it was, yeah, that, those are good memories. I didn't really think about that till I was sitting here looking at these chairs, actually. One of the things that um, I, I always think about when we're hiring people is what this trajectory will have on their life. And uh, this had a lot of it had a pretty big trajectory on your life. You, no, I had no effect whatsoever. <laughs> you, you stuck with public radio for a long time. I and- did. I did. I was. I was here. I'm actually. It's. I didn't realize I had worked on Worldview for four years, because your later producers five. seem to have completely forgotten about me. Because I know there are all these like <laughs> Worldview reunions that I don't get invited to, and yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm well, frankly offended by it. Uh, Julian was asking me before the show how long. I was like five years. I thought there was five. Uh, you know, but I was. Uh, I was close. Well, definitely Odyssey started. In January of '98, if I, well, I should I should say definitely I say that, and then I I'm not at all sure that that's when it was, but I think it was January of '98. So it would have been so three and a half years actually, because it was middle of '94 when I started. The OJ Chase was in June of '94 for those paying and, attention. And remember, you had auxiliary jobs that were fun. You got to produce artistic I license. Did. You got to appear. That was hard. On, I have on, to say, producing artistic license was hard. With it Victoria was. Lautman. No, not Victoria. She oh, yeah. wasn't hard, but. Uh, I really did not – I was not the person for that job. I didn't know very much about art. I didn't know very much about the art world. It was hard. But you also got to be the doyen of international affairs on uh, – On Metropolis, uh, on Metropolis with Aaron. with Aaron Freeman. I did. I got to do so much fun stuff. And then eventually I got to do Odyssey. And I did, when I started here, I did not know that a radio show was in my future. Um, I just thought this was a really interesting place and I liked everybody here and I wanted to work here. So yeah, it did have, it did have a big effect on the trajectory of my life. Um, a good one, definitely. I mean, working here was a great experience. Um, wouldn't trade it for the world. Why did you want to go become an attorney anyway? Um, you know, I really, (laughs) more than wanting to be an attorney and attorneys will recognize this sentiment, I think. (laughs) Um, I really wanted to study law. I really wanted to go to law school more than anything. I wanted to study the law and it was a great education. It was, it was a really great ed- education. Um, super interesting. You uh, went to University of Chicago I went to the University school. of Chicago Law School in 2006. Um, you know, and I was doing Odyssey and I was learning something about a lot of things. And you I were hanging like, out with a lot of lawyers there. You were, uh, you were having attorneys on all the time. I did have attorneys all on. All those constitutional, Barack Obama. Barack Obama was on a few times. Constitutional attorney. That's right. That's right. He was a constitutional law professor. Um, this is before he was Barack Obama. He was just regular old Barack Obama. I think he was a state senator, actually. Yeah. So, um, and people kept saying, like, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's up and coming. Everyone's got their eye on him. And, uh, yeah, I would say they underestimated <laughs> or understated that because um, you don't really ever think, like, oh, maybe this person will end up being the president of the United States. Like, that's just not a thought I have all that often about people I'm talking to. Um, but yeah, I did. I thought, and I thought that the law was really, really interesting. And I kind of wanted to know more about one thing. I felt like I knew a lot about a lot of things and I wanted to know more about one thing. So back to school, I went. It's a shame because you had, uh, think of all the fun people you worked with here. The Quentin Young, nice yeah. man. I miss Quentin. I miss Quentin. He was a nice man. He, he also, Quentin was a really fascinating person because, you know, he was so, uh, utterly committed to single-payer health care yep. that it just – it was like he breathed it. I mean he just didn't – he was constantly trying to move things in that direction and totally committed to the project. And at the same time, that guy loved life more than 
Oh yeah, he he, he, he did not get cheated. So, he did not get cheated. He was so he was just a happy person. He liked everybody he met. He loved meeting young people. Loved it. You know, yeah. he'd come here and there's lots of young there's have always been a lot of young people around this radio station, interns and people starting their career in journalism. And he was so energized by that. Yep. Um yeah. And Milo Stalik, you are on the board of Facets, like many other of the producers who would come after you. Uh, the, the producers handled Milos, and they all became close with him and uh, um, friendly. Yeah, that hurts a little bit. That's a little closer. He only died in July, and in fact, there's a memorial for him that will be happening at the Arts Club. I didn't know I was going to do this plug um, on October 15th um, that I am, I guess, I'm not sure if looking forward to is the right way to put it, but um, I think it's going to be a, a really nice evening. Yeah, he was he was really uh, like I would never have met someone like Milos if I hadn't come through here through WBZ and through Worldview. And he was just, you know, you talk about like changing the direct trajectory of your life. He did. I mean, I feel like he opened up a, a whole world that I actually probably thought I knew something about. And then I realized, oh, there's so much I don't know, but so much to learn. And so uh, it just had like depths that I didn't know about. I never saw a Czech film before I met Milos. <laughs> and he did that for the whole city. He did. He did. Yeah. He'll be missed. Um, all right. So if you were – you got any career advice for me? Um, for you? Yeah. Oh. Um no. Like, like if there's no. ever going to be a... Don't go to law school. <laughs> 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 or at least don't become a lawyer. <laughs> don't become a lawyer. That was, that'll be number one. All right. Gretchen Helfrich, great to reminisce with you and chat on the radio. There's Mike Gilmore weighing in with a little hearty applause. <laughs> Gretchen Helfrich produced Worldview between 1994 and 1998, then went on to host Odyssey in this studio until 2005. She is now a civil rights attorney who advises no one to go into law. <laughs> <laughs> There's more. We'll unpack that in your next uh, interview. Gretchen Helfrich, good to see you. Good to see you, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have, uh, let's see, it's... We're going to have segments from Dearborn, Michigan, and our Worldview trip to the Midwest. So stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida these days. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for all the cheering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.